thank you very much, Isabel, for joining us. And I'll just let our viewers know that Isabel is the daughter of Duncan and Joanne. And Duncan is uh, a very good friend and, as it were, neighbour. And we have had some great conversations beginning last summer when we were allowed to congregate in places like the King, King's Arms and so on. Isabel and I have had some good conversations about religion and history and Shakespeare and all sorts of things. And uh, so what we're doing today for the first time is we're actually speaking over Zoom about some of the questions that were raised in the summer and some other questions that have arisen since then. And uh, we're going to include this in our Corona Conversations category. So Isabel, over to you. Why do you want me to start? <laughs> well, the questions that you had. What, the first question, uh, let's say the question that's most pressing at the moment, that's most on your mind about the religious studies uh, course that you're doing. Um, and just tell us, is this GCSE or? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a GCSE course on religious studies. Um, yeah. So we've currently been doing kind of um, life and death in Islam so we did we've done war the death penalty so I think my main one is kind of why why people still go to war because there's different things in the Quran that say that you should and you shouldn't so I don't know I kind of I kind of just want a definite answer but I know it's really difficult with what the Quran says and obviously you can't change that so right. so we've been looking at that so I find I find it quite interesting to see what different people think because there's so many different kind of perspectives about whether or not you should so yeah I don't know I've just been thinking about it really all right so that's one question um what about the you had two or three you said lined up did you uh I'm trying to think now I oh, I thought, you, I thought you had them written down in front of you and you were about to read them out. No, sorry. Um, oh, that's all right. So tell me the background to this question then. It came up in class um, and obviously the class is online, isn't it? Yeah, at the moment. I've got my notes. Yeah. yeah. And so do you remember what the how the question was posed? Um, so we have kind of different units in... Um, the course and um, the main kind of lesson topic was how do Muslims respond to conflict so obviously there were different things so we looked at the causes such as the Syrian war um, and kind of the main causes of war so political disagreements territorial things um, and then the problems that were caused by war so kind of whether going to war was or not worth it but kind of yeah so kind of worth it if you if you think about the consequences so um, and then we looked at why Muslims would reject violence um, because of what the Quran says um, and then whether or not be kind of justified and whether they should respond to pacifism. So, yeah, that's how it kind of came about. Right. And has there been any sort of discussion uh, between you and your other students or is it just a question that you're thinking about as an essay that you have to write or what's the framework for this? Um, Obviously, we haven't really been able, we don't really talk that much at the moment because obviously it's all online, but um, they do get us to think about it because they ask us. So what you have in the exam is you have an essay question where they'll give you a statement such as um, all Muslims should be pacifists, for, um, for example. Um, and then 
you have to write kind of arguments for and against uh, so if they give you one of these statements you have to think about the pros and cons so that's how i'm kind of thinking about it but obviously uh, it's really difficult to back up your points because all the opinions are so different so you don't really know what to say but what what which opinion have you come across that sounds the most convincing um probably that if it was if someone was to kind of attack you first that maybe you should um retaliate but only um at the same proportions to how they attacked you so you should never um kind of do it first um and it should the main aim should be to kind of come to peace at the end of it so the main aim of war is to come to peace um and then yeah so just only really do it if someone kind of does it to you first not never mm. do mm. it first Mm. Well, you know, you've given there three very important principles. And so I would actually say that those three principles you've just expressed um, just need one more, one fourth principle. And then I would say you've given the kind of answer that I would have given. <laughs> so you already knew the answer as far as I, I'm concerned. I think this is the right answer according to the Quran. And according to the practice of the prophet and his his companions. Um, <clears throat> so number one, your principle, you said it should be in self-defense. Yeah. Right. It should not. You should not be an aggressor. There should be no aggressive war. You should not initiate hostilities. You have to only defend yourself. And that's th the second principle was that when you respond to the aggression it should be proportionate retaliation yeah right it should be in proportion to the violence of your of your enemy who has just initiated hostilities and he's or they the army have manifested a degree of violence and you have to respond with proportionate retaliation so you're absolutely right that's the number two principle Number three principle that you said is that the aim of the warfare is to establish peace. So the purpose of war is to reach peace, not to propagate war for its own sake and to expand your territories aggressively and so on and so forth. Now, can you think what is the fourth principle that I want to add to make your answer as complete as possible in my terms, as I understand it. What's that fourth okay. principle? What do you think is the fourth principle of the Quranic, Islamic, authentic, principled response to aggression? I kind of have two that I have in mind. So either that there should be kind of legitimate authority, so like a um, head of state to kind of call the war. Um, what was the other one? Um, and if it was the last resort, so if there was, if um, efforts to achieve peace had already been made and it hadn't worked, so that maybe then you should think about going to war. Isabel, you've just added two, which I didn't even, wasn't even going to mention. So you're already in advance of what I was thinking. <laughs> um, the, so we've got those first three, then these second two, legitimate authority, a state authority. And then it should be only resorted to when all other efforts at mediation have failed. So that's brilliant. You've now got five principles, whereas I thought that we only needed a fourth 
So now I'm going to add my one, which will make it six. Um, in addition to those very good ones that you've mentioned, I would say that according to the Quran, one of the uh, purposes and aims and conditions of warfare is given in uh, the surah called the pilgrimage. Surah, that's, you know what surah means? Chapter. Uh, yeah. yeah. So chapter 22 is called the pilgrimage. And I think it's verses 38 to 39 that are regarded as the first revelations that came to the Prophet Muhammad concerning warfare. Because as you know, for the first uh, 12 years of his mission, it was in Mecca. And then for the second 10 to 11 years, it was in Medina. And it was in Medina when he had a little city state and he was adjudicating the disputes um, and we had the constitution of Medina and so on and so forth. So it was a legitimate state. Um, but you can't really call it an Islamic state at that point because it included Christians and Jews and even polytheists in the constitution. It embraced everybody in the Medina framework at the beginning. Um, so you can't really call it an Islamic state. You can call it the state that Muhammad was governed, was, was the head of. But because it included so many other people, it's very misleading, I think, in today's terminology, especially to say the Islamic state. Because you immediately think of what these lunatics have done with uh, the so-called Islamic state in Syria and Iraq and so on. So it was in Medina that this small group of Muslims were faced with the aggressors from Mecca. They were all polytheists and they had all put a boycott on the prophet and his followers. So he was persecuted by the Meccan pagans, the Quraysh polytheists. And so eventually they had no option but to leave and go to Medina as exiles and to set up their own state. And it was in that state of warfare between Medina and Mecca that the questions began to arise as to what do we do? Because in Mecca, we never fought back. The prophet told his followers in Mecca, whatever they do to you, turn the other cheek. It was like a Christian attitude. Just don't, aren't, don't fight them back. Just turn the other cheek and wait with patience for God to deliver us from the hands of these people who have effectively declared war on us, but we're not allowed to fight back. Because the prophet in Mecca had received no revelation giving him permission to fight back. It was pure pacifism. And that's probably the opinion you're referring to as that Muslims should be pacifists because of what the prophet did in Mecca. But then another opinion comes and said, no, but look at what the prophet did in Medina when he actually did fight back and he wasn't a pacifist. Um, and so there was a big question mark over the community in Medina. What should we do with these uh, pagans who are trying to kill us and are we allowed to fight them and are we allowed to fight them in the sacred months when you're not supposed to lift arms or anything so this revelation came to the prophet and as I, I think it's 38 or verse 38 or 39 in chapter number 22 which is that of the pilgrimage 
And so these verses came down and said um, that permission has been given to the believers to fight back. Now, it's very, very important here. One syllable changes the whole meaning of this verse. Because it says, Now, that means permission is given to those who are being fought against. If it was yukatiluna, just i instead of u in that word, yukatil, katil means to, to fight. And those who are being fought against, it means it's passive. You have been violated by somebody else. You have had an aggressor who's attacked you. So that's why it's so important to get these letters right in the Quran when you're reading it and think and uh, remembering it. Udhina lilladhina yukataluna. Permission is given to those who are being fought against. For they have been wronged. Again, passive. And then it goes on to say that um, they were only driven from their homes and made enemies out of these people because they affirmed their belief in God. Then it goes on to say, so there, what, what do we have there? We have the first fundamental principle that you mentioned, that you're only allowed to fight in self-defense when you've been attacked. So that's what that verse opens up with. The permission is given to those who are who have been uh, aggressed or attacked or or have been fought against, for they have been wronged. They were driven from their homes only because they said, "We believe in God." And then it goes on to say, and this is what I was going to add as my fourth principle, but now is number six. If God had not driven some people away, back, if, if God had not pushed back the aggressors by means of other people, in other words, God doesn't come down and do it himself. He has people who believe in him to do his cause on earth. And so it says, if God had not had those people to drive back the aggressors, then the following places would be destroyed. And those places start not, as you might imagine, with the mention of a mosque, but it starts with the mention of um, It begins with cloisters. Right? places where monks and nuns would have been would have been living uh, and churches synagogues and the last is that plural form of masjid do you know that word masjid no i haven't come across it it means mosque oh okay so, and it's from a root meaning where you prostrate uh, as you know the muslims when they pray they the kind of crown of the prayer is when they put their forehead to the ground yeah that action is called sajda s-a-j-d-a-h and so that root sajda goes into the word masjid the prefix ma meaning a place so the place where you perform your prostration 
is called a masjid. And so the masjid, the plural of that is masajid. And so that comes at the end of this list of places of worship that would be destroyed if God did not give some people the right and the duty to repel the aggressors. So what I've argued in many places is that a Muslim who is true to this Quranic revelation about warfare is one who has to be prepared to lay his life or her life down, to sacrifice himself or herself, not just for the defense of Muslim territories and mosques and so on, but for the sake of monasteries, of convents, of synagogues, and of mosques, and all of them are referred to in, the, in this Quranic verses, places where the name of God is invoked much, where God is being mentioned in all these different languages, in, in all the different liturgies, but what are they doing in the synagogues and the churches and the cloisters? They're all hymning the praises of God. And so a true Muslim who wants to follow this Quranic verse to it, to the letter, as well as its spirit, is somebody who's got to say, look, I'm going to defend this church against those fanatical Muslims who are trying to attack it. So if I find myself confronted with a, a mob of Muslims, let's say in, in some village in, in Nigeria, in yeah, Nigeria, it's a terrible situation between the Muslims and the, and the Christians in Nigeria, a lot of fanaticism on both sides. So if I'm in this village in, in Nigeria and I see a mob of Muslims with sticks and stones and swords and hatchets and all sorts of things approaching a church and saying, we have to kill these people in the church, it would be my duty as a Muslim to stand at the door of the church and say to those Muslims over my dead body, it doesn't make any difference to me whether you are Muslim or Christian or Jewish. If you are coming to this church with a violent, aggressive intent, I owe it to my God, my revelation, my religion, to, attack, to defend the people in this church against you, even if you call yourselves Muslims. That's the degree to which you've got to be prepared to put, you know, have the courage of your convictions. And unfortunately, this is precisely the kind of verse and the kind of um, embrace of all religious believers and of all humanity that the fanatics in Islam are not interested in listening to. They just say, oh, no, 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 that they argue out of the literal meaning of the verses and they will just cherry pick, get the verses they want. And they say, no, this is what we have to do for this or that political or ideological reason, but not because it comes from the spirit of the Quranic revelation. So I think you've got a pretty complete answer if you've got self-defense number one, proportionate retaliation number two, uh, aim to have peace as soon as possible, the aim, the purpose to have peace. Number four, a legitimate authority has to be there to declare any kind of warfare. And fifth, you have to exhaust all alternative options before you resort to fighting. And sixth, you have to be 
prepared to fight in defense of all, not just the ones mentioned in the Quran, but by extension, all places of worship and all people for the sake of all people who are being aggressed, because that takes you back to the first principle, that you fight in self-defense, but you also fight to defend people who have been aggressed and violated, and they need to be defended, whether they're Christians or Jews, doesn't make any difference. It's a question of who is the aggressor and who are the aggressed, the oppressed. And you always take the side of the oppressed against the aggressor. Now, there are, there's one other thing, which is the rules of warfare in Islam. Those are very important, um, that you don't kill people who are non-combatants, people who have not come to the battlefield, the elderly, children, women, uh, religious people, uh, you know, monks and nuns and so on, and you don't chop down trees, you, you don't strike your enemy in the face, you're not even allowed to hit them in the face, because the prophet said, never strike your enemy in the warfare in the face, because God made the human being, made man in his own image, and the word in Arabic for that image is face, as if to say the, the human face is the is the image in which God's nature is most fully manifested. So don't you be insulting God when you strike someone in the face. So all these rules of warfare and particularly um, the uh, the respect that you've got to give to your enemy at all times. Um, so that what you when you get angry because you're in the war, you're not being angry against the person. You're being angry against the violent intention that is motivating that person. And so that's what you have to you're allowed to be angry about. But the true Muslim warrior is the one who doesn't get angry at all on the battlefield. He's like a Zen master. And the person that I've written quite a lot about, Imam Ali, was known as the greatest warrior in early Islam, but also known as the greatest saint after the prophet. So his self-mastery, self-control was so great that once when he was in a battle, in a single battle, you know, um, single combat with a giant of a man who had challenged him to come and fight. And Imam Ali fought him and felled him, but just as he was about to deliver the final blow, this defeated man on the ground spat in Imam Ali's face and insulted his mother. And Imam Ali couldn't kill him. He drew back because in that moment of being spat at and having his mother insulted, he felt the slightest rising up of anger. And he knew that he could not kill out of anger. It could only be for the sake of the truth and justice and victory in this war that they had imposed upon him. So he couldn't kill him. And a beautiful poetic uh, expression of this has come out of someone called Jalaluddin Rumi. Have you heard of him? No. He's a very famous Persian poet. R-U-M-I, Rumi. 
And if you look him up, you'll see he, he was the best-selling poet on the New York Times bestseller list for, I don't know, four years or something. He was hugely popular. He lived in the 13th century and he wrote this epic poem called the Masnavi. And that's one of the most influential poems in the whole of the Muslim tradition. And in that poem, he, he gives a beautiful portrait of this episode, of what this means, of what uh, self-control Imam Ali had, and how all of this came from a spiritual understanding of the higher realities. And it's really well worth reading that part in Rumi's poem. So I think you've got pretty much all right the other example a more one a closer to home uh, and one that is actually historical and not just poetic is a great man called the emir abdul qadr al-jazairi he and they say for short abdul qadr with a k but is properly spelt with a q the emir means the prince abd means the servant al-qadr is one of the names of god the servant of the all-powerful. And the Emir Abdul Qadr fought the French in the 19th century from about 1830 to 1843 or 44, something like that. But for over a decade, he kept the French imperial armies out of Algeria. They were invading aggressively and doing the most awful things to the Arabs. They, they even said that whoever captures an Arab and cuts off his ears and his nose and sends it back to France as a trophy of war, they get a certain reward, they get extra pay. So they were encouraged to terrorize the Arabs in the 19th century. And uh, one of the uh, commentators on this in the 19th century, a man called Bopichon, I think his name was, he said, the, the best path for the Arabs is the path to civilization. And this, the quickest path to civilization is terror, that we have to terrorize the Arabs. And even if it's morally questionable as regards the means, because the end is so wonderful that we're giving the Arabs our Western modern civilization, the end justifies the means. So they terrorized the, uh, the Algerian Arabs. And when the Emir's followers came to him and said, look, look what they're doing to us. Can we do the same to them if we capture them? He said, no. Any French officer who complains of ill treatment from one of my men, I personally will beat the soles of the feet with a hard stick bastinado i think it's called i will deliver this punishment to any of my soldiers who mistreat a french prisoner of war and there was a famous incident when the emir abu Qadr was he sent a message to the bishop of algiers and said look i've got officers here who are catholic and who are devout and they need to say their their liturgy their mass so can you send me a priest so that they, that my French officers can, can say their prayers properly, their liturgy. And the bishop asked the general in charge, and the general said, yeah, you can send the priest over to them, but don't tell our French soldiers, because if you tell them, 
and they see how in what a civil civilized manner what a generous manner these apparent savages how they are treating our french officers whereas we are the ones who are treating the arab prisoners of war like savages we are torturing them we're butchering them so you mustn't tell our soldiers because otherwise our what they called in french la mission civilisatrice the civilizing mission the french said we have a mission to civilize these barbarians just like the english had with regard to india very very similar that the british thought we must bring our great modern industrial technologically advanced civilization to the poor ignorant masses of india this is the same kind of colonial mentality and that's what the french did but even more brutally one could argue than the, what the british did in india so um this is the kind of thing that the emir abukada was responding to french aggression with islamic principles by saying we're not going to play your dirty game we're going to to we're not going to have you as our teachers we will use our revelation to treat you with the utmost respect and we will treat your prisoners that we capture with utmost respect and that's why when the emir was finally defeated was taken to various places in france the people who came to pay homage to him and thank him were the french officers who had benefited from his treatment in in algeria so they came and they said look we're so sorry that you've been tricked like this because basically they tricked him into it. But you see what i'm getting at is that if you look up this man you will see that just a hundred you know, less than 200 years ago fully documented this is the man who when he was exiled and went to live in damascus he protected the entire western diplomatic community and other christians who were living in the christian quarters of damascus precisely against the kind of mob i was describing earlier who were baying for the blood of the the western diplomats and their families and of christians generally because they had got this false propaganda drilled into them by a, a tiny minority of of fanatics that all of our problems here go back to the colonialists and the colonialists are using the christians in damascus as a a bridgehead for their purposes so if we can get rid of the christians in damascus we get rid of the colonialists in the west so they were attacking christians indiscriminately and the emir abukada was the one who saved the entire diplomatic community of the, the western powers and thousands of other ordinary christians who were living in the christian quarters of damascus and he came out of his house first of all he gathered as many as he could in his compound it was a large house with a huge garden and he told all of the western ambassadors and their families to come and take refuge there and when the numbers swelled too much he took all of them to the citadel but the really important point is that when the mob came to demand that he hand over the christians he said to them look we are muslims we believe in islam we have given these people protection they must be protected by us you have no right to do this when they, they had this argument and then when the emir who had only about 70 men 
with arms. And this was a mob of hundreds. When the emir thought that he couldn't prevail through argument and that he would have to fight the Muslims, he turned to his, his soldiers and he said to them, my brave men, prepare yourselves to fight to the death against these fanatical Muslims. And I assure you, I promise you, the cause for which you are going to fight and possibly die now is as sacred as the cause for which you fought in Algeria. So he was making a moral equivalence that when we fought in self-defense for our homes and our families against the French imperial invaders, it's exactly the same moral situation as when you fight against Muslims who are fanatical and unjust in defense of the Christians, the very people, the French ambassador and his family, who just a few years ago was busy ruining your country. So these principles in the Quran are not just there in theory. They were put into practice all the way through Islamic history to, for better or sometimes more in accordance with the spirit of the revelation, sometimes less, so that these cherry pickers would go for other verses that say, kill the disbelievers wherever you find them. That's probably going to be the biggest argument against what we've been saying. There are verses that say, slay the infidels wherever you find them. So the answer is, what's the context of that verse? And the context is that when war has already been declared, and the disbelievers are attacking you, then in the course of that warfare, of course, you've got to try and kill them wherever you find them. But it's not like saying, initiate hostilities, find the disbelievers and kill them. That's not what's being said. So there are all these sorts of arguments that you have to sort of be prepared for against that. Um, so is there anything you'd like to add or comment on or ask? not really sure because all of it yeah it explains it a lot better now that you've explained it um but yeah like you said i don't think there's any kind of one reason that says no you shouldn't and yes you should because obviously it's all to do with kind of what you believe so if you really think that you want to kind of fight for your religion obviously um that's that's what you want to do but obviously there'll be some people that don't believe it and think that they should be pacifists so that i don't know is that right well you see there are three three positions one is the position of the aggressor the aggressive muslim the fanatical muslim who will completely disregard all of what we've been saying and say no 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 this is all cowardice we've got to fight against the aggressors um, even if they haven't directly fought us, we have to just take the verses that suit our ideology. So you're never going to be able to convince those people with any arguments. They've already made up their minds. They want to just kill indiscriminately the West and all these people. And they're going to just cherry pick. They pick the verses that correspond to their ideology. The opposite extreme to that are people who say that if, if you want to follow the Quran, you have to be pacifist. You have to see that there's no situation today that will enable you to go to war. You should be a pacifist. But then there's a middle position, which is the one that we've been talking about, which is 
you do have to fight sometimes, but only under these conditions. It has to be a just war with a properly constituted authority according to the rules of warfare and all the things that we've just been talking about. So between these three positions, and you, when you answer this question, you don't even have to say what you believe to be the right one. You just say there are these three positions. You see, you don't have to put all of your eggs in one basket and say, well, I think, because as soon as you say, this is my opinion, then it will attract a certain kind of hostility from people who will only take things from the negative side of the picture and think, well, you know, what's gone wrong with Isabel? You know, she's, she's been brainwashed or something, and that would be aggressive. But if you just say, well, you know, there are these three positions within Islam, uh, and others, but you know, you just be as cool and detached and objective as possible. And that way you're just stating the different perspectives, principles, positions, postures, without yourself saying, I think that's right and that's wrong. You just say, well, this is what the internal argument is among the Muslims. And let's observe it and respect the fact that there are these different opinions. And the Muslims are not all saying this and all saying that. There's a diversity of opinion. And let's just observe this argument as detached, but fair and impartial observers. Let's be impartial about it. So, Isabel, um, anything else? What's the time now? We've gone well beyond our, <laughs> our 20 minutes. But, um, yeah, next time we may want to talk about um, some other questions that are coming up, less controversial yeah. and perhaps more spiritual and more about, um, for example, the meaning of certain concepts in Christianity and Buddhism or, you know, in a kind of cross, in a comparative context, if that's what they're asking of you in the GCSEs. Yeah. But um, I'll leave it up to you for our next session then okay yeah all right isabel thanks very much thank you